This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards, the weekly podcast. I thought today, if it's okay with all of you, I'd reflect on transport because it is so illustrative of the many problems we have about British political culture, living in the United Kingdom in terms of quality life, and what needs to be done, really. I was prompted uh, into my thinking for a variety of reasons. One was um, when I was interviewing Andrew Adonis uh, during the Politics Festival, he mentioned that one of the things he and Jeremy Corbyn have in common is a passion for the railways, and they both read rail magazines. Uh, Andrew said that he just buys one when he gets on a long train journey, whereas Jeremy orders them and has them delivered to the house, such as his interest. Anyway, uh, I had a long journey a few days later, so I bought one, of uh, the rail magazine, it's called, and I found it completely absorbing and interesting. And obviously, at the moment, the magazine is reflecting on the chaos of the new timetabling that was introduced in parts of the north of England and parts of the southeast of England. Uh, a catastrophe on a level that was both depressing and wholly predictable. And it was really interesting reading the magazine. The editor is not uh, a fan of renationalizing. He supports, I think, basically uh, the privatization program. But one article after another illustrated why things had gone so badly wrong and I'll come to that in a minute so I was reading that up completely you know I've never been so engrossed in a magazine for a long time a rail magazine I'm going to start ordering it like Jeremy Corbyn um, but then uh, direct experience always helps in these matters and I was at Finsbury Park in North London on one of these uh, overground trains uh, ultimately owned by Govia, one of the companies who uh, is causing some of the chaos. And it, the, the, the chaos, when you witness it directly, is incredible. Uh, the, a train had stopped supposedly going to Moorgate at one platform, and another train had been on another platform for ages. 
And suddenly an announcement said, one train is no longer going to Moorgate, it's going to King's Cross, the other will be going to Moorgate, but we don't know when. Passengers rushed from one train to the other, then they were told it was the opposite way round, and one was going to King's Cross, they rushed back again, both trains crammed, this was kind of rush hour time. Then they announced that they didn't have a driver for one train, but they did for the other. Then they announced that the driver would be on the other train. People must have had a workout, there's no need to go to a gym when you're using these trains um, because the exercise required just to uh, keep going uh, is the equivalent of an hour and a half in any kind of expensive gym um, and god knows what the mental uh, cost is uh, for people suffering this every day so that, there's, there's that kind of example and then the other the other one which it sums up the quality of life i think in the uk which is poor compared to many uh, countries in Europe and elsewhere actually uh, and people only realize how poor it is when they go to these other countries and experience something different and that is that um, as part of the timetable change in the um, uh, south of England uh, there was going to be additional trains from where we live near Finsbury Park to direct to Brighton and some friends of ours and myself thought, oh, this is great you know we can put the bikes on uh, and get straight to Brighton from Finsbury Park what an example of railways actually working for once but of course this was part of the timetable change uh, most of these trains are cancelled or delayed so it's absolutely impossible to prepare say a day out to Brighton on the assumption you'll ever get there um, so all plans have been cancelled or hopes dashed um, and that is of course a trivial example uh, of the much more serious chaos that people experience uh, in the north of England at the moment and in the south of England more generally those commuting every day those dependent on these trains running reliably and regularly um, and uh, the, the, the state of their lives can be seen by the tweets they tweet to the various railway companies who offer a kind of Twitter service. The poor sods who have to reply, of course, it's nothing to do with them, um, can offer very little comfort. And the euphemisms used to explain the delays as far as there are any explanations are darkly comic. Uh, this train is cancelled, and you can sort of click on the cancellation explanation, operational difficulties. What does that mean? Has the driver not turned up? Have they not got any drivers? Is it some other element of the system that isn't functioning? And that, of course, was where reading the rail magazine confirms all your instincts about what's wrong. Um, the number of agencies involved in that timetabling change and this is of course only one example of how the railways are run chaotically are vast so of course the department of transport is ultimately responsible although you then have a transport secretary chris grayling who says no this is not down to me it's down to the other agencies 
but yet he had to give the clearance for the timetable changes. So in one respect, he was holding the levers. But in another respect, he wasn't in control of the levers. He was being advised by a body who had been set up to advise on the readiness for timetables, and he had been told that they were ready. Meanwhile, Network Rail were partly responsible for the infrastructure of the uh, system, and clearly they weren't ready. But the train companies, who were also partly responsible, clearly felt, because they started the timetable, obliged to go ahead with the timetable, even though they weren't ready either, for reasons that are partly to do with network rail, partly to do with their own resourcing, partly to do with the readiness of other equipment and so on. And that only scratches the surface of the number of agencies involved in delivering uh, an essential service, as essential to many people, and indeed the whole country in the consequences, as health provision, schools and all the rest of it. And the answer is, because everybody is responsible, no one is responsible. It is like some one of those internal BBC reviews about what went wrong and the, the end thing is you can't find which layer of management was directly culpable. And so it is with the fragmented railway system. And there will be an internal review and already Govia with good cause is being threatened with losing the franchise. But that won't even begin to start explaining the levels of culpability um, because on one level they are all guilty like one of those Agatha Christie whodunits but on another level they're all not guilty because they can pass the buck to some other agency and it is so obvious that the chaotic fragmentation rather than being efficient has been grotesquely inefficient and that is not down to any single individual running a train company I'm sure no one set out to cause chaos it would be bonkers to set out to do so similarly those running in inverted commas network rail no doubt do not set out to cause chaos similarly the transport secretary or all the regulatory bodies below or above him supposedly regulating the railways do not set out to cause chaos that would be perverse but that is the result of the fragmentation not only of provision but of responsibility where there are no clear lines of accountability chaos follows and that is the most powerful argument for renationalizing the railways but there are other ways of doing it too there's the the model that works is transport for london where you have a mayor ultimately accountable and a mayor will know that if transport is no good in london he or she will lose an election and therefore he or, or she appoints the best people available to run uh, transport for London. The model was Ken Livingstone, who has now been vilified, but was in many ways a brilliant administrator. And he just brought in the best people from the United States to sort out the underground, which was in an appalling state. 
and he did it. He raised money for from the congestion charge to run the buses, and both uh, the tubes and buses are regulated with clear lines of accountability. And that's the other reason which got me thinking about all of this uh, this week. Uh, there was a brilliant program on Radio 4. It's on the iPlayer where a reporter from the north of England reported on what it was like being dependent on public transport there and compa compared the nightmare of trying to be uh, reliant on buses to get around with London, where there now is decent provision. You have to pay for it because we live in a culture where governments don't believe that subsidising is uh, a national good. Uh, subsidising a public service um, and it is one of the most costly fare systems in Europe uh, but it's on the whole runs well. Since deregulation of the buses in the mid-1980s uh, there has been a massive decline in provision in the north of England uh, and it's really interesting that even though people there are theoretically more dependent on public transport than, say, uh, in uh, parts of the southeast. Uh, bus usage has declined, I think the figure was something like by 90% since the mid-1980s when the regulation uh, was introduced and car usage has soared. And it is because, quite often, people go to a bus stop and find there isn't a bus running for an hour or so. Uh, they had an interview with a guy from Sunderland, a pensioner, can't afford to run a car. There used to be four buses an hour, there's now one. And no one is accountable for the decline in this service and the provision of buses. And this is a big issue. I remember Ed Miliband during some mad period of his leadership when there was uh, a, a, an embryonic attempted coup against him was mocked because at the this time of internal crisis he was in the northwest giving a talk about the problems of bus deregulation but it's a big big issue if you live there and uh, that brings me again to part of the answer regulation is like a swear word in british politics um, because you very quickly get to nanny state language um, and it's linked to emotive terms like freedom. If you deregulate, you give companies the freedom to innovate and all the rest of it. But the consequences of deregulation are a massive drop in the quality of life. The economy runs less efficiently. And so it seems to me the lessons of all of this are so clear and apply so much more widely than transport. The fragmentation of the NHS, done well-intentioned with the expectation that services would be delivered more efficiently, that patients would be empowered, has had precisely the opposite effect. Because uh, no one knows who is responsible for the delivery of services, because so many agencies are responsible, the delivery of health has become much less efficient. And a much greater degree of centralization and accountability is required to address that problem. And patients, instead of being empowered, feel wholly disempowered 
by a service where they're not quite sure who is running what and who they need to contact to establish what the hell's going on. Uh, fragmentation is doesn't work. It can work in markets like, I don't know, supermarkets where there is real competition and price is the mechanism or quality of food which determines who goes where and why. But in these services, which uh, people and the economy depend on, running reliably, affordably, or indeed in health, of course, no one pays anything, so money cannot be a means of creating a sense of competition. Um, you need absolute, clear lines of accountability. Who is responsible for what? And um, the fragmentation model has proved to be a total disaster. And so has light regulation. You need, uh, in order to get the buses running in the north of England, the equivalent of transport for London. And then individual mayors or whatever, totally accountable to the electorate about the quality of transport provision. And then you get people traveling, the economy working, fewer people on cars, so those in cars get a better quality of life. It seems to me so obvious. And yet, when you advance this case, people say, because of the British political culture of the Blair Cameron period and the Thatcher period that preceded it, oh, that means you're anti-reform. This absurd term where reform versus anti-reform was a juxtaposition that uh, appeared to justify this fragmentation as if that was the only reform route. Um, the reform model is that Transport for London one, uh, where there are brilliant people running the transport and a figure accountable to the electorate. Um, and that is the kind of model. And it needs centralisation, not fragmentation. Um, and that is, that is so obviously the lesson. These issues actually are as big in terms of impact on the economy and quality of life in some respects as Brexit. But of course, all the political energy is focused on this bonkers project of Brexit. And um, no doubt with that Chequers cabinet meeting looming and a white paper on Brexit. A lot of my energy will be focused on that in uh, the coming days. But oh, it's so frustrating that moral energy is not being targeted on how we sort out the fragmentation of public services that has been the running theme totally destructively for decades in the UK. Right, sorry about that. There weren't many laughs in this uh, episode, um, but I promise you there'll be some laughs next week. Um, and I hope if you're travelling anywhere in the United Kingdom, you manage to get from A to B without too much exhaustion, hassle, waste of time, waste of economic productivity, and all the rest of it. Oh yeah, I must mention, uh, I've got to do this every week. Um, my one-man show, Rock and Roll Politics, is live at the Edinburgh Festival this summer. You can get tickets on the Edinburgh Fringe uh, website, um, so do come along. Um, there's going to be a different show every day. Oh, there's so much material. I, mean, I, could, I could do a different show every day of the year. 
Um, so anyway, I hope some of you can make it. And thanks for listening today. And I'll be back next week with probably a Brexit spectacular. So do tune in for that. Do subscribe, rate on iTunes. And thanks so much for listening.